Welcome to the Water Cooler, everybody. I'm David Brody. It's Tuesday, October 27th, 2020, and you know what that means, right? First off, it's Taco Tuesday at the Brody household. Sorry, had to just lead with that. But also, sorry, Democrats, but it's now official. Amy Coney Barrett is a Supreme Court justice. The swearing-in is done, even though, trust me, Democrats are still swearing about the whole ordeal today. So now what? We're, we're going to unpack this idea by liberals of packing the court. And now we are also officially one week away from Election Day. The president out on the campaign trail in Michigan, Wisconsin today. A victory in at least one of those states could cement a second term. Meanwhile, Joe Biden has left the basement. He's got Georgia on his mind with two campaign stops in the Peach State. So is he being greedy by going after a state that should be in the Republican column? It may be a big gamble that could come back to haunt him. But first, our newsmaker, Rick Grinnell, the former director of national intelligence. Look, he's hard at work on the campaign trail right now as we speak for President Trump especially spending a lot of time in those key Rust Belt, Rust Belt states like we talked about, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan. And that is where our conversation from earlier today began. Rick Grinnell, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. David, thanks for having me. Well, uh, I don't even know if you know what city you're in at this point. You've been doing a lot of campaigning. Let's, let's go to the Rust Belt states for a moment because I know you spent a lot of time in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania as well, and, of course, Michigan is in there too. Uh, what's your lay of the land? What do you think is going to happen on election night, Rick? Look, I, I think that um, we're going to win Pennsylvania. Let's talk about that for a little bit. We're doing really well in Scranton. We're doing really well in all the Republican areas. I think Republican areas of Pennsylvania, which are traditionally red, I think they're going to go blood red. And that's how we won in 2016, is to really increase those numbers. And uh, we're also working really hard in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Uh, I'm doing a ton of events there. I know a whole bunch of other surrogates that are there. The president was just in Pennsylvania in three different spots. We also have a fantastic candidate in one of the really tough swing areas out near Pittsburgh, Sean Parnell. Um, he's really running a fantastic race. He's going to help the president because Republicans are being identified there and, and he's doing a great job. The other candidate, Jim Bognett in Scranton, uh, is going to flip that seat. I think we're going to get two uh, Republicans will get two seats there in Pennsylvania, maybe even three. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that that our candidate in Scranton and our candidate in Sean Parnell out near Pittsburgh is really going to make a fundamental difference in those two areas. Rick, uh, with, with Wisconsin and Michigan, you talk about Pennsylvania, you feel confident there. What about Wisconsin and Michigan? Uh, d d is there a sense that Wisconsin might be the, if not easier play, the, the one that might be able to get you uh, over the hump there? Yeah, we won a little bit bigger margins in Wisconsin than Michigan, if I recall. And uh, so I think I'm spending a lot of time in Wisconsin. We've had some great Republican leaders in the past who are all in. Wisconsin's looking good to me. Um, I, I think that there's a really good working class uh, group of people. The other group that I'm seeing um, that are really excited about President Trump this time are uh, Serbian Americans and Albanian Americans. We've worked hard on the Kosovo Serbia issue. Uh, Donald Trump has got a historic agreement. He's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize because of his work negotiating this um, economic normalization package. I've been throughout Wisconsin a couple of times, and particularly there are a lot of Serbian 
Americans in Wisconsin, probably the state with the most Serbian Americans, they're really excited about Donald Trump this time. What he's been able to do, uh, compare it to the Obama-Biden eight years of really ignoring the Balkans, ignoring uh, Serbia and Kosovo, uh, that's pretty historic and, and they recognize that. You've also got to understand, David, is that I've never seen a Republican get first and second generation Americans like Donald Trump. These Americans have come to the US because they were concerned about fascism and totalitarianism in their own countries, they left it. They also recognize it in this country in the simple forms and in the early stages. They see the progressive left and what's happening and they are the first warning signs. They are screaming to Americans who are complacent that you are always one generation away from losing your freedoms. I have never seen uh, first and second generation Americans more focused on electing Donald Trump and telling Americans to wake up. Yeah. It's almost like that analogy of the frog in the boiling pot, where Americans are not sensing what's, what's being turned up on them, and the heat is getting hotter, and those who jump in uh, from being on the outside immediately say, hey, this water is really hot, you should pay attention. And that's exactly what we're hearing from uh, first and second generation Americans. Well, Rick, what a great transition. Speaking of hot water, uh, to talk about uh, Hunter Biden for a quick second uh, and Joe Biden. I know the campaign says, look, this isn't so much about Hunter Biden and everything we're hearing. It really is about Joe Biden. And, and I'm wondering what you think is going to potentially drop. Is there anything more that we should expect in the next week? Or are there certain crimes that, that Joe Biden potentially uh, could have committed here in what we're seeing with these emails and, and the like? Look, I, I think it's obvious when you look at these emails uh, that that there is some very concerning facts that have come out, and the reporters need to look at this. Uh, you know, Joe Biden has gotten richer while he's been in office. That's just a fact. While he's been a politician, he has gotten wealthier. Donald Trump has gotten poorer while he's in, been in office. I mean, he gives up $1.6 million, uh, $400,000 a year times four, Donald Trump has just said no to $1.6 million. But when you look at these Hunter Biden emails, there's no question by any rational uh, review of these emails, there is no question that Hunter Biden was selling access to Joe Biden and that Joe Biden's brother and son Hunter were clearly doing work to save money for Joe. Now, the question whether or not reporters are going to dig deep and ask Joe, did you know about this? Did you know that they were saving money for you? Mm -hmm. Did you help? Because we have seen evidence of Joe Biden saying he didn't meet with these individuals and then finding pictures. Or Joe Biden saying he didn't know anything about it. And Hunter Biden's business partner steps forward and says, that's not true. I've been around Joe Biden where he's talked about these right. issues. And so now I understand that there's some recordings that are going to come out of, uh, attorneys from Joe Biden and Hunter Biden um, saying uh, really terrible things uh, in, uh, in, in audio that uh, prove that they knew all about this scheme. And so reporters are um, really uh, disappointing me right now with their lack of interest in the facts. Uh, Washington, D.C. press corps has a real problem. They have a credibil credibility problem with the American people. 
And they're going to have to overcome it somehow. I'm not sure how, but they're going to have to start pursuing journalism rather than doing advocacy like they're doing now. What can you tell us about these recordings? Are you, this is what you're hearing, or is there, there are no reports out there about these yet, are there, the, the lawyer recordings? So I've, I've heard that this is a part of what's coming um, from a couple of reporters tonight. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll all find out, I guess, at the same time, so to speak. And let me ask you about the Durham report. Uh, we're not going to get the Durham report, obviously, before the election. H how uh, concerned are you about the fact that we're not going to get those answers before the election, uh, Rick? Yeah, look, this is one of the frustrating parts because for me, there's a lot of uh, evidence that shows that early on in the whole Russian collusion uh, hoax, an investigation. Early on in 2016, there were career intelligence officials who, who said that this information was coming from the Russians was not correct information. It was Russian propaganda from the beginning. Mm -hmm. It was slinging mud at Donald Trump from the Hillary Clinton campaign, eventually from the Steele dossier. Um, when career intelligence officials knew that this was mudslinging by Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump. You have mm -hmm. to ask yourself, why is it that the political appointees under Obama allowed this misinformation, these lies to, to go forward, and they silenced those people who were raising red flags? And I think there's no other answer than to say they were super interested in having somebody take on Donald Trump. And so the fact that they were uh, mm -hmm. slinging mud at Trump yeah. Um, made them look the other way, even though they knew the information was fake. That's wrong. And I think we've got to get to the bottom of exactly who pushed away these individuals, these career individuals who were raising red flags from the beginning. Some political people in the Obama administration knew, and they should be held to account. Rick, before we let you go, I need to ask you about Christopher Wray. I know the president has uh, expressed some concern about potentially keeping him on after the election. I mean, I guess we'll wait and see about that. But do you have concerns at all about uh, what's been going on with Christopher Wray and some of what's coming out of the FBI as it relates to some of his testimony about Antifa and some, some other things about Russian uh, interference and all of that? You know, David, uh, you won't like this answer, but since we're seven days away from uh, uh, the election, I don't think it's really fruitful to have a former cabinet official critique a current cabinet official. Sure. So let me, let me dodge that question, but let me say something on the broader um, issue. I think it's incredibly important that President Trump select a cabinet and select staffers and uh, political appointees who believe in his agenda and who come from the outside. I don't believe that the president should appoint anyone who has a Washington DC address on their resume. I think mm. the insiders have proven to be problematic. We're trying to change Washington, and we need to go with outsiders. Fair enough, Rick. Rick Grinnell, uh, good luck there on the campaign trail, and we'll, we'll talk to you after the election. I really appreciate it. Thanks, David. A wide-ranging interview with Rick Grinnell. By the way, I just uh, I basically just gave myself a compliment. Hey, by the way, did you notice he said secret recordings with Hunter Biden? You might want to check this out later tonight. I believe that's coming somewhere. Maybe not necessarily on this network, but check around, especially on justthenews.com later this evening. Just giving you a tip right now. Back in a moment with Evan McMullen. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back, everybody, to the water cooler. Uh, Trump-Biden, we're one week away. Not a huge third-party candidate, if you will, this time around, at least someone that hasn't gotten the exposure like our next guest did in 2016. Uh, Joining me now, uh, Evan McMullen, uh, who ran for president as an independent back in 2016. And, uh, Evan, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be with you, David. Well, Evan, sum it up uh, for us. We're a week away. Uh, Trump, he doesn't change at all. He never changes. And, and Biden, uh, you know, hasn't done as much campaigning. So I wonder if that's going to potentially hurt him. Well, what's your sense of, of where this race is going? Well, you know, the, the polls have showed Joe Biden with a significant lead over the course of, of multiple weeks. Of course, in, in some polls, that, that lead is tightening. Uh, in my mind, that's, that's not a surprise. You have undecided voters who become decided voters. And especially with many people voting early because of the pandemic, uh, they have been making their decision a little bit earlier. The schools are tightening. Uh, it's looking like more of a race. Uh, I think Biden still still has the lead in most polls. I think that, frankly, he's done a better job at building a cross-partisan uh, majority, uh, probably, to, to win this race. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's very, very close. Are indicating because I have seen a lot of that momentum out there for Trump. I mean, it's MAGA Nation and all of that. And I know Joe Biden says that, uh, you know, these rallies, he's not going to hold these big rallies. He says he could draw huge crowds. I'm not convinced necessarily he could, not like Trump. But why do you think that Trump might potentially be able to uh, pull off another potential miracle here? Well, I, I just I don't I don't know. I mean, like I said, he's he's down in the polls and, you know, I'm not somebody who has a ton of confidence in polls. So I don't I sort of view them as directional indicators, not absolute indicators of where people are. And also people respond to polling questions differently than they you know, than when they actually make voting decisions. And so it's just a hard to say, you know, I. I personally, if I were running for any office in this cycle, I wouldn't be doing large events. It puts you would put yourself you'd put yourself as a candidate at risk. You'd put the voting public at risk. I just wouldn't do it. Uh, but you know, I know that the two campaigns have differing views on that. Obviously, President Trump is holding rallies, and Biden has chosen not to. Trump has actually gotten the coronavirus, and thankfully, he survived. Biden has avoided contracting the virus. And he's probably done so by avoiding large events. And so, you know, I, that's what I would do. And I'm not sure if the large events are indications of, of um, support, uh, you know, are indications of a, a winning possibility, a winning strategy for the president or not. I think the, the crowds have diminished somewhat in this campaign cycle versus the last campaign cycle. Mm-hmm. It, whether that translates to, to voting numbers either, I, I don't know. We'll just have to see. Evan, do you think this is a referendum on Trump on COVID only? I mean, is that, I know it's the, the big 
you know, the big elephant in the room, if you will. But I mean, is it just COVID or is it just Trump fatigue? What, what do you think might be President Trump's undoing if he ends up losing next week? Yeah, you know, David, I think the coronavirus is a really big deal, but it's not just the coronavirus. It's that the, the coronavirus pandemic has included with it, you know, a lot of economic devastation in the country. We've got 8% unemployment, uh, and that doesn't really even tell the full picture. Axios did a story recently where they showed that 46% of white Americans over the age of 16 uh, only 46% have have jobs that pay them $20,000 or more a year. For black Americans, it's only 40%. So the, the story is that we've got 8% unemployment. That only includes people who are pursuing work still. And then you've and then it and it cuts out people who have some job, even a, even if it's low uh, low paying. Um, but but the story is that you know, we've got an immense amount of people who about 23% of the country that is either unemployed or underemployed due to this pandemic. And I think the president's failure to respond appropriately to it. I think the economic factor there is is just as big of an issue for yeah. Trump as as the health crisis. But Evan, I, I would say this, that you, you cite those figures, but of course that is uh, after COVID and this idea that Democrats and, and many liberals actually wanted pretty much somewhat of a complete shutdown of the economy. It's Trump, if anyone else. I mean, Trump's the guy saying, let's open things up and let's get back to normal. So, I mean, it, it is Democrats for the most part that have wanted more of a of a lockdown than, than Trump. As a matter of fact, Trump has kind of been exactly the opposite. Like, let's get the economy going again. Yeah, that's right. And that, that's an important point to make. And I know a lot of see, people see it that way. But what I would say to that is, you know, some sort of if we had taken stronger action, or, or let me say it this way, the, the sooner we take stronger action to get this pandemic under control, the sooner we can reopen. And I think that's what we hear the Democrats saying is, hey, let's take strong action now. Let's get this under control. Let's beat it and let's get back to work. Trump's approach is a different one in which he's saying, as, as you know, you represented, and as, as I would say, he's saying, look, let's let's keep working through this. Yes, we're going to lose some life. You hear a lot of Republicans, my fellow Republicans saying that. Yeah. Um, but we got to keep working. The problem is, is it just goes on and on and on and on. And the economy just can't sustain that. We're hearing Allstate and Disney and so many other major companies announce new. Meanwhile, Congress is, you know, and the president have not reached. Um, you know, an agreement on on more stimulus and, yeah. and we're broke anyway. So that's tough. So it's we, we've got to beat this thing. The sooner we beat it, the sooner we get back to work and the sooner we get back to thriving as a country. And we need a plan to do that. Evan, I got about 30 seconds left. Uh, you ran for president in 2016. You got some 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 good traction there for sure. Uh, now the country four years later, what do you make of where this country is today? Uh, why you might not want to why you didn't want to run this time around? And give it give that to me in about 30 to 45 seconds or so. Sure, David, and I know we may disagree on this, but but I'll just speak candidly and say that I, I continue to believe that that Donald Trump is unfit to be the leader of the Republican Party and the leader of this country. I believe we're, we're suffering the consequences of that now. And I believe the country and the GOP are going to be much better off if we can move past this Trump period in our history. Uh, and I, I sincerely hope we do that. Let's recommit to our founding values as a party and as a country. And let's move forward. Let's find common ground with each other and move forward, solve problems. 
have you know active you know yeah. in debates where we need to. Uh, but let's get this country on track. Evan McMullen, uh, always a always pleasure to see you. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, David. Talk soon. All right, that's Evan McMullen, who ran for president back in 2016, and he's got a few opinions. You know what I'm saying? Speaking about a few opinions, Paul Fari from the Washington Post, the media critic there, has got a few things to say. We'll talk about the media and Trump when we come back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Water Cooler, everybody. I'm David Brody. It's Tuesday, October 27th, 2020, and you know what that means, right? First off, it's Taco Tuesday at the Brody household. Sorry, had to just lead with that. But also, sorry, Democrats, but it's now official. Amy Coney Barrett is a Supreme Court justice. The swearing-in is done, even though, trust me, Democrats are still swearing about the whole ordeal today. So now what? We're, we're going to unpack this idea by liberals of packing the court. And now we are also officially one week away from Election Day. The president out on the campaign trail in Michigan, Wisconsin today. A victory in at least one of those states could cement a second term. Meanwhile, Joe Biden has left the basement. He's got Georgia on his mind with two campaign stops in the Peach State. So is he being greedy by going after a state that should be in the Republican column? It may be a big gamble that could come back to haunt him. But first... Our newsmaker, Rick Rennell, the former director of national intelligence. Look, he's hard at work on the campaign trail right now as we speak for President Trump, especially spending a lot of time in those key Rust Belt, Rust Belt states like we talked about, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan. And that is where our conversation from earlier today began. Rick Rennell, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. David, thanks for having me. Well, uh, I don't even know if you know what city you're in at this point. You've been doing a lot of campaigning. Let's, let's go to the Rust Belt states for a moment, because I know you spent a lot of time in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania as well. And of course, Michigan is in there, too. Uh, what's your lay of the land? What do you think is going to happen on election night, Rick? Look, I, I think that um, we're going to win Pennsylvania. Let's talk about that for a little bit. We're doing really well in Scranton. We're doing really well in all the Republican areas. I think Republican areas of Pennsylvania, which are traditionally red, I think they're gonna go blood red. And that's how we won in 2016, is to really increase those numbers. And uh, we're also working really hard in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Uh, I'm doing a ton of events there. I know a whole bunch of other surrogates that are there. The president was just in Pennsylvania in three different spots. We also have a fantastic candidate in one of the really tough swing areas out near Pittsburgh, Sean Parnell. Um, he's really running a fantastic race. He's going to help the president because Republicans are being identified there and, and he's doing a great job. The other candidate, Jim Bognett in Scranton, 
uh, is going to flip that seat. I think we're going to get two uh, Republicans will get two seats there in Pennsylvania, maybe even three. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that that our candidate in Scranton and our candidate in Sean Parnell out near Pittsburgh is really going to make a fundamental difference in those two areas. Rick, uh, with with Wisconsin and Michigan, you talk about Pennsylvania, you feel confident there. What about Wisconsin and Michigan? Uh, d- d- is there a sense that Wisconsin might be the, if not easier play, the, the one that might be able to get you uh, over the hump there? Yeah, we won a little bit bigger margins in Wisconsin than Michigan, if I recall. And uh, so I think I'm spending a lot of time in Wisconsin. We've had some great Republican leaders in the past who are all in. Wisconsin's looking good to me. Um, I, I think that there's a really good working class uh, group of people. The other group that I'm seeing um, that are really excited about President Trump this time are uh, Serbian Americans and Albanian Americans. We've worked hard on the Kosovo Serbia issue. Uh, Donald Trump has got a historic agreement. He's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize because of his work negotiating this um, economic normalization package. I've been throughout Wisconsin a couple of times, and particularly there are a lot of Serbian Americans in Wisconsin, probably the state with the most Serbian Americans. They're really excited about Donald Trump this time. What he's been able to do, uh, compare it to the Obama-Biden eight years of really ignoring the Balkans, ignoring uh, Serbia and Kosovo, uh, that's pretty historic, and, and they recognize that. You've also got to understand, David, is that I've never seen a Republican get first and second generation Americans like Donald Trump. These Americans have come to the U.S. because they were concerned about fascism and totalitarianism in their own countries. They left it. They also recognize it in this country in the simple forms and in the early stages. They see the progressive left and what's happening, and they are the first warning signs They are screaming to Americans who are complacent that you are always one generation away from losing your freedoms. I have never seen uh, first and second generation Americans more focused on electing Donald Trump and telling Americans to wake up. It's almost like that analogy of the frog in the boiling pot where Americans are not sensing what's, what's being turned up on them and the heat is getting hotter and those who jump in uh, from being on the outside immediately say, hey, this water is really hot. You should pay attention. And that's exactly what we're hearing from uh, first and second generation Americans. Well, Rick, what a great transition. Speaking of hot water, uh, to talk about uh, Hunter Biden for a quick second uh, and Joe Biden. I know the campaign says, look, this isn't so much about Hunter Biden, everything we're hearing. It really is about Joe Biden. And, and I'm wondering what you think is going to potentially drop? Is there anything more that we should expect in the next week? Or are there certain crimes that that Joe Biden potentially uh, could have committed here in what we're seeing with these emails and and the like? Look, I I think it's obvious when you look at these emails uh, that that there is some very concerning facts that have come out. And the reporters need to look at this. Uh, You know, Joe Biden has gotten richer well, he's been in office. That's just a fact. Well, he's been a politician. He has gotten wealthier. Donald Trump has gotten poorer while he's been in office. I mean, he gives up $1.6 million 
uh, $400,000 a year times four. Donald Trump has just said no to $1.6 million. But when you look at these Hunter Biden emails, there's no question by any rational uh, review of these emails, there is no question that Hunter Biden was selling access to Joe Biden and that Joe Biden's brother and son, Hunter, were clearly doing work to save money for Joe. Now, the question whether or not reporters are going to dig deep and ask Joe, did you know about this? Did you know that they were saving money for you? Mm -hmm. Did you help? Because we have seen evidence of Joe Biden saying he didn't meet with these individuals and then finding pictures, or Joe Biden saying he didn't know anything about it, and Hunter Biden's business partner steps forward and says, that's not true. I've been around Joe Biden where he's talked about these right. issues. And so now I understand that there's some recordings that are going to come out of uh, attorneys from Joe Biden and Hunter Biden um, saying uh, really terrible things uh, in, uh, in, in audio that uh, prove that they knew all about this scheme. And so reporters are um, really uh, disappointing me right now with their lack of interest in the facts. Uh, Washington, D.C. press corps has a real problem. They have a credibi credibility problem with the American people, and they're going to have to overcome it somehow. I'm not sure how, but they're going to have to start pursuing journalism rather than doing advocacy like they're doing now. What can you tell us about these recordings? Are you're, this is what you're hearing, or is there, there are no reports out there about these yet, are there, the, the lawyer recordings? So I've, I've heard that this is a part of what's coming um, from a couple of reporters tonight. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll all find out, I guess, at the same time, so to speak. And let me ask you about the Durham report. Uh, we're not going to get the Durham report, obviously, before the election. H how... Uh, Concerned are you about the fact that we're not going to get those answers before the election, uh, Rick? Yeah, look, this is one of the frustrating parts because for me, there's a lot of uh, evidence that shows that early on in the whole Russian collusion uh, hoax and investigation, early on in 2016, there were career intelligence officials who, who said that this information was coming from the Russians was not correct information. It was Russian propaganda from the beginning. Mm -hmm. It was slinging mud at Donald Trump from the Hillary Clinton campaign, eventually from the Steele dossier. Um, when career intelligence officials knew that this was mudslinging by Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump, you have to ask yourself, why is it that the political appointees under Obama allowed this misinformation, these lies to, to go forward, and they silenced those people who were raising red flags? And I think there's no other answer than to say they were super interested in having somebody take on Donald Trump. And so the fact that they were uh, mm -hmm. slinging mud at Trump yeah. um, made them look the other way, even though they knew the information was fake. That's wrong. And I think we've got to get to the bottom of exactly who pushed away these individuals, these career individuals who were raising red flags from the beginning. Some political people in the Obama administration knew, and they should be held to account. Rick, before we let you go, I need to ask you about Christopher Wray. I know the president has uh, expressed some concern about potentially keeping him on after the election. I mean, I guess we'll wait and see about that. But do you have concerns at all about 
uh, what's been going on with Christopher Ray and some of what's coming out of the FBI as it relates to some of his testimony about Antifa and some, some other things about Russian uh, interference and all of that? You know, David, uh, you, you won't like this answer, but since we're seven days away from a, a, the election, I don't think it's really fruitful to have a former cabinet official critique a current cabinet official. Sure. So let me, let me dodge that question, but let me say something on the broader um, issue. I think it's incredibly important that President Trump select a cabinet and select staffers and uh, political appointees who believe in his agenda and who come from the outside. I don't believe that the president should appoint anyone who has a Washington DC address on their resume. I think mm. the insiders have proven to be problematic. We're trying to change Washington and we need to go with outsiders. Fair enough, Rick. Rick Grinnell, uh, good luck there on the campaign trail and we'll, we'll talk to you after the election. I really appreciate it. Thanks, David. A wide-ranging interview with Rick Grinnell. By the way, I just, uh, I basically just gave myself a compliment. Hey, by the way, did you notice he said secret recordings with Hunter Biden? You might want to check this out later tonight. I believe that's coming somewhere. Maybe not necessarily on this network, but check around, especially on justthenews.com later this evening. Just giving you a tip right now. Back in a moment with Evan McMullen. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. So there she is, ACB, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, the new Supreme Court Justice of the United States, one of nine now. And by the way, when uh, liberals say it's a 6-3 conservative majority, don't buy it. John Roberts is a total wild card, so it's really more like 5-4. We'll get into that in a moment. Uh, here's some of Amy Coney Barrett from last night. I have spent a good amount of time over the last month at the Senate both in meetings with individual senators and in days of hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee. The confirmation process has made ever clearer to me one of the fundamental differences between the federal judiciary and the United States Senate. And perhaps the most acute is the role of policy preferences. It is the job of a senator to pursue her policy preferences. In fact, it would be a dereliction of duty for her to put policy goals aside. By contrast, it is the job of a judge to resist her policy preferences. It would be a dereliction of duty for her to give in to them. Federal judges don't stand for election. Thus, they have no basis for claiming that their preferences reflect those of the people. This separation of duty from political preference is what makes the judiciary distinct among the three branches of government. A judge declares independence 
not only from Congress and the President, but also from the private beliefs that might otherwise move her. The judicial oath captures the essence of the judicial duty. The rule of law must always control. Amy Coney Barrett confirmed. That I, I was waiting for her to just be like, here you go. Here's what's on my notepad tonight, folks. Uh, let's get uh, some insight now from Denise Harley, Senior Counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, Denise, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Hi, David. Glad to talk with you about this. Very exciting. Well, yeah, not, not only exciting, historic, and for sure, uh, tilting the court in a certain way, potentially conservative. I say potentially because, I mean, a lot of folks talk about John Roberts. I mean, he, he's a bit of a wild card, and maybe that's being nice to say a wild card at this point. What's your sense of how this is going to look going forward, Denise? I think one of the most important things Justice Barrett has expressed during her confirmation hearings and then in the speech, as you just played, is that her understanding of the duty of a judge or a justice. And she said, it's the judge's job to resist her policy preferences. And that's the kind of thing that we should be looking for in all Supreme Court justices. It's not right to have a particular policy preference or agenda or even a certain judicial philosophy. We're looking for someone who has a public record, um, a demonstration that they understand how to apply the rule of law as it's written. Denise, uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings, it was scorched earth uh, for the Democrats. This time around, we didn't see, not only did we not see scorched earth, we saw, we saw exactly the opposite. At the end, even Dianne Feinstein and, uh, and Lindsey Graham hugging uh, there at the end. Uh, w w were you surprised that Democrats didn't put up more of a fight, or was there just nothing they could really do at this point? Well, we certainly saw something different from when uh, Judge Barrett, then Judge Barrett, was put on the Seventh Circuit. At that time, her religious faith was uh, brutally attacked, even by senators. And that's completely inappropriate. Our Constitution has in there a provision that says there's no religious test for office. Um, it's unconstitutional. And so it was nice to see uh, most of the senators actually acknowledging that and refusing to suggest that now Justice Barrett can't function simply because she's a person of faith. Uh, the media, unfortunately, was the one that was trotting out those attacks this time. But it, it was good to see a collegial approach. And you could tell that everyone in the committee did respect Justice Barrett's qualifications and her very obvious intellect. Yeah. Hey, Denise, let's talk about packing the courts for a moment. Here's my analysis. Democrats are going to do this. They're going to do it. I mean, Biden won't give a straight answer on it, which means, I mean, that is an answer, if you will. And if they get the Senate and they're frustrated because Amy Coney Barrett was rushed through the way they see it, they're going to be out for retribution. That's my take. What's, what, about, what do you think? And this just goes back to why it's so important that judges understand their role. The founding fathers expected the courts to be the weakest branch, and that's because it's not a branch that's supposed to be advancing and pushing its policy preferences onto the American people. In fact, most of the courts that we at Alliance Defending Freedom take up to the Supreme Court are cases where government officials in whatever capacity have tried to silence or punish or target certain viewpoints. That's what we not we just, we don't need that in our court system. We need the courts to protect Americans from that. And we certainly don't need to load up with judges who are going to have a particular agenda. So I hope for the American people's sake, 
what we see is stability in the court system and something that we can rely on, rely on what the law says. Let me ask you about the court overall. I mean, I get the sense from John Roberts that that he wa- he doesn't want to take these these large strides, if you will. He doesn't want to necessarily create social policy. At the same time, he was okay with Obamacare. Anyhow, I don't want to get into all of that. I guess my question is, where is this court going exactly? Because a lot of folks think it's 6-3 conservative, but I don't, I don't really see that at all. I think John Roberts wants to keep things uh, pretty, pretty even. It's always dangerous to predict um, or to guess at motives, but I think we know that Chief Justice Roberts is very concerned about the institution and sort of maintaining stability even in society. Uh, And so I'm hopeful that what we'll see is a court that continues to garner more and more public respect and trust. And thankfully, in in recent months, the polling has shown that American people are starting to put more trust in the Supreme Court. And I think that's a very good thing. This is a time when Americans are cynical. We have lost trust in so many of our core institutions. And so I'm hoping that we're gonna see Supreme Court decisions that allow us to kind of nod our heads and be like, you know what, this is okay. This is defending our fundamental freedoms of free speech, religious freedom, the things that America was founded on. You think uh, we're not gonna see a David Souter here in Amy Coney Barrett? It doesn't seem that way. You know, from everything she's expressed, she just has a very solid record of, um, you know, in- interpreting the law as it's written. And as it's written is yeah. fundamental freedoms in our Constitution. And so, it, it, you know, based on the track record and what we've heard her say, we think she really does understand her duty. And we are prayerful and hopeful that she will. Denise Harley, always great to uh, speak with you. Thanks for the insight. It was great stuff. Thank you. Thanks, David. Take care. All right. When we come back, uh, the last sip. Uh, And for Ilan Omar, she sees it as the last battle, if you will, coming up. Biden, the progressive left. Get ready. Buckle your seatbelts. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. All right, so Donald Trump wants to make Joe Biden a liberal. He definitely wants to tie him into the squad, right? Ilan Omar, AOC, all the folks, Rashida Tlaib. Uh, and of course, Joe Biden's like, come on, man, I'm not a liberal. Look, folks, I'm not a liberal. Well, tell that to Ilan Omar, because Joe Biden may not be a liberal, but Ilan Omar actually wants Joe Biden to very much follow the progressive left. I want to play you an excerpt from the October 26th episode of Axios on HBO. Have a listen. The president is only as successful um, as his collaboration is with with Congress. And we, we will have um, a, a cohort of progressives that are very clear about their objectives for wanting the implementation of you know, Medicare for all and the Green New Deal um, and raising the minimum wage and, and not allowing for fracking. 
if Biden's elected? Are there any positions that you think a progressive Democrat should absolutely be in this spot in a Biden administration? I would say all of the cabinet <laughs> positions should be filled by <laughs> progressive Democrats. Oh, I think all of those positions should be filled by Democrats. I bet you do, Elon Omar. And by the way, so I have a list here, and I'm looking down the list. This is what uh, the, the progressive left wants. They want to eliminate fracking. Uh, they want the Green New Deal. Uh, they want Bernie's manifesto, for sure. Uh, they want to defund the police, or I'm sorry, my bad, reimagine the police. Give me a break. Defund the police. Uh, but here's the problem. Uh, with Joe Biden, uh, let me go through this list. They want to eliminate fracking. Well, Biden says, no, I'm not going to eliminate fracking. I don't know if you believe him, but that's what he says. That's against the progressive left. The Green New Deal, he says, I'm not for the Green New Deal. That's what he says. Uh, defund the police, he says, I don't want to defund the police. So let me get this straight. So, so Joe Biden doesn't want to do anything the progressive left wants, even though Elon Omar says, you better do what we want if you become president. See, this is the big tap dance for Joe Biden. This has been the big problem for Biden all along. He's trying to thread the needle. Uh, he's trying to basically play to the progressive left and say, look, I'm with you. But oh, by the way, Rust Belt, middle class, blue collar, white voter, uh, I'm actually with you. So he's trying to be with both sides. The problem for that is if you try to thread the needle, you could tick off both sides. That leaves an opening for Trump, and that could be MAGA part two. Back in a moment. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. All right, remember when Mitt Romney, back, I think it was 2012, he said, Russia's the biggest geopolitical enemy foe that the United States ever had, uh, or ever has. And everybody was laughing. Huh, hilarious, Russia, what are you crazy? Anyhow, listen to what Joe Biden's saying. We got more on that. Nick, Fa uh, Nick Palacy, hello. Uh, joining us now, senior uh, reporter for justthenews.com. Hey, Nick, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, David. What's Biden, uh, what's Biden saying now about Russia? So if you remember during the presidential debate in 2012 on foreign policy, you had Barack Obama saying the uh, Cold War called and they want their foreign policy back because <laughs> Romney was referring to Russia as the geopolitical foe, the number one geopolitical foe of the United States. And when it came to foreign policy, they were a threat. Everyone laughed, including people laughing during Biden's foreign policy address in April of that year, in 2012, people were chuckling in the audience when he mentioned this. And Biden, echoing Obama, went even further, saying that this is not 1956. You know, Romney's way off. He's a Cold War leftover. He has a Cold War mindset. But now we've got Biden on 60 Minutes uh, saying on Sunday that uh, Russia is the number one foreign policy threat to the United States. So it's a total flip-flop. Now, when you look at this, I think the turning point for the Democrats on Russia was when uh, Russia hacked the DNC during the 2016 cycle. All of a sudden, in the Democratic Party, you heard leaders warning about the threat from Russia, and that has continued as a foreign policy threat. They, they rate them as number one. But the Republicans were ahead of the curve on this. You have Romney saying it in 2012. Republicans have been pretty consistent on the foreign policy threat from Russia. And it seems like the Democrats, in particular Biden here, yeah. have been all over the map 
when it comes to Russia over the last decade. Yeah, I tell you what, the politics have changed and so have the positions, typically. Uh, Nick, I really appreciate uh, your insight. Thanks. And we'll look for more of it, I guess, on justthenews.com, right? Is that where we find you? That's it. You find all the videos and stories there. All right, Nick, appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. On the show uh, tomorrow, which is Wednesday, which is, by the way, let me wish you an early happy hump day, a Wednesday. Uh, where's the camel? Uh, who's on the show? Tommy Laren is on the show tomorrow. So she, she has a few things to say, typically. I mean, she's not an introvert, if you know what I'm saying. And presidential historian Doug Weed uh, also will not get in the weeds. He'll be very interesting. Trust me. We'll see you on the show tomorrow on The Water Cooler.